Thank you for listening to audio from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church or our Sunday services, please visit gccugene.org. Father, we thank you that we can come in whatever state we're at and worship you. God, I thank you that we don't have to look at two minutes ago, two hours ago, or two days ago, but instead we get to look to the life lived 2,000 years ago. Jesus, thank you that your life was given to us, your life of perfect, righteous obedience. Thank you that our right standing with the Father has nothing to do with our life we live right now, but it's through trusting in faith in the life you lived 2,000 years ago. God, speak to us this morning. Thank you for your word. It is sharper than any double-edged sword, so I pray this morning you would do what you do through your word, empowered by the Spirit, and that's cut us, but also, God, heal us. It's convict us, and it's transform us. I pray that we would have sensitive um, ears, sensitive hearts. God, wherever we've become seared, I pray you would desensitize us. Wherever we've been so heavily influenced by our culture with what love is versus how your Bible defines what love is, God, reshape us. I pray you would make us bold. I pray you would make us courageous, but you would accompany that with meekness and gentleness as well. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What, what, the, what we're going to look at this morning and the main point is that grace governs Grace governs all of the saint's life. That's the main point. So for those who have ears to hear, the first question, what's the main point? Grace governs all of the saint's life. So every area of the saint's life should be governed, led, controlled by grace. And where we're getting that from is if you go back to the beginning of this letter that Paul has written, he actually starts it off this way. Grace and peace to you. And if you look at how Paul writes his letters, you'll see the same thing. They're started with grace and peace. In other words, there is no peace without grace first. We'll explain that in a minute. And he ends it the same way. If you jump down, we normally don't do this, but we're going to go to the end. Look at verse 23. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. It's almost how he ends. There's there's one verse after that. So he starts the letter with grace. He ends it with grace. So its bookends are all of grace. And all of the Christian's life, all of the saint's life is to be governed by grace. That means the things that we do, the way that we live, the way that we act, the way that we engage relationally uh, um, uh, in our marriages, that's all to be governed by grace. What is grace? I'm going to give you some definitions. This all comes from the same Theologian is one of my favorite theologians of all times. The grace of the Spirit comes only from heaven and lights up the whole bodily presences. Grace puts its hand on the boasting mouth and shuts it once and for all. Nothing but grace makes a man and woman so humble and at the same time so glad. The higher a man is in grace, the lower he will be in his own esteem. All of these from Charles Spurgeon. Also like what Philip Yancey says, he says that grace does not depend on what we have done for God, but rather what God has done for us. Ask people what they must do to get into heaven and most reply, be good. Jesus' stories contradict that answer. All we must do is cry, help. Grace, if properly understood, will make everyone squirm, especially 
any of us and all of us that have a self-righteous bone because grace makes you uncomfortable because you come with nothing to offer God and God gives you everything. His full acceptance, his full approval, his infinite love that cannot change and will not change. Which is why grace humbles you. Because if there's something that we could come and offer and lay in the hands of God, then we would lay claim to that and say, look what we've done. Grace doesn't allow for that which makes you squirm because all we want to do is be able to take some credit or show something that we can do. Grace is this gift that's also defined as one-way love. It comes at you all times. It's not based on a two-way street. It's God's gift coming at you the whole time. It is a lavish gift that you can't control and you can't earn and you can't maintain. I like what Elise Fitzpatrick says. She says this, the weaknesses, failures, and sins of our families are the places where we learn that we need grace too. It is there in those dark mercies that God teaches us to be humbly dependent. It is there that he draws near to us and sweetly reveals his grace. Paul's suffering teaches us to reinterpret our thorn. Listen to this. Instead of seeing it as a curse, we are to see it as the very thing that keeps us pinned close to God. The Christian who is growing in maturity doesn't grow seeing less need for grace. The Christian who is actually growing in spiritual maturity is growing in a greater need of grace. This means that they are growing more poor and more needy. It's not that you sin more, but you start to realize this sin nature that, that is there and that's always been there. And then you realize, oh my goodness, grace is amazing. You have a small view of the cross if you have a small view of your sin. But when you understand how much God has saved you from, that you have not earned it, deserved it, then, then your, your understanding of grace grows, your understanding of the cross grows, and from that, our lives get poured out. I'll say it again. Spiritual maturity is not seeing you need less grace. Spiritual maturity is seeing more and more throughout your life how much you're in desperate need of God's grace. We see this in the Apostle Paul. We see his wrestle that he's wrestling with internally. And then by one of his later books, he says, that I'm not just a sinner, I'm the chief of sinners. This isn't Paul trying to boast in his sin. He doesn't unpack all that is. He, he, he's not being competitive on some level. He's actually understanding that I am so completely broken and in, I'm in desperate need of grace. Grace is also an invitation to come and die. But it's also an invitation to come and live. Grace makes you die because it, it stifles your pride and says, you don't do it. It's just opposite of Nike. Just do it. It's you can't do it. But it also lifts you up in the sense that it's all been done for you and you have the full acceptance and approval from God. Here, here, here's a story based upon my life. I've shared it with some men with, uh, this week and also with our staff. But I started following Jesus when I was 23. Before I started following Jesus at the age of 21, 22, I got into the, the sport of mixed martial arts. And I remember in my am, amateur career that I, I, I faced my first loss. And I literally waited until everyone had left the building. Everyone besides one family member. Because I could not face people. I could not face loss. I could not face that feeling, and so I just waited. This didn't get better. By my last amateur fight, I got knocked out in 13 seconds. It's a horrible story. My friends gave a nickname for that, but we won't go into that. So 
I just remember the same thing. I waited until everyone else had, had, had left besides one person, and I came out. So fast forward a couple years, I start following Jesus, start to understand this concept of grace, start to understand what it is to be a child of God and and have that be your driving identity in your life. Someone came along and said to me, not just one, multiple, just know that that, that your relationship with Jesus is going to make you soft. Those are the words. And it's going to be the end of your career. I say all this to say this, that for the first time in my life, I was able to almost run to the ring with a sense of joy and leave the ring with the same sense of joy, whether I had won or lost. I no longer had to run and hide. I no longer had to feel shame. I no longer had to do that. Why? Because for the first time in my life, I understood that what happened inside of there did not define me. The actions of having your hand raised or having it lowered weren't the defining thing. It wasn't the defining thing anymore of my life that I stepped inside of there as a son of God who he was immensely proud of, and I stepped out with the exact same identity, all given to me by grace. Grace makes Christians dangerous. Grace makes Christians free because grace no longer gives you the ability to boast and tell everyone how awesome you are. Grace humbles you to say, it is all God. It is all grace. This is Brenny Manning's last book he wrote. It's all of grace. The people that understand by the end of their lives, it has been grace. It is grace that starts it. It is grace that finishes it. With that, let's dive in this first section, how grace governs all of our lives. Let me say this before we dive in. We love the grace talk, amen? But, but what also is sandwiched in the grace in this book, but also in this chapter, is a call as well. So I'm telling you right now, I'm probably going to activate your inner lawyer which is basically I'm going to make you rise up and something in you is going to want to defend it. What I'm asking you to do is let the word of God bear on you today. Let the spirit of God bear on you. It's as the author of Hebrews says in in, in 4.12, that the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. God's word has, has the power to cut us. That's actually a good thing, to challenge us, to exhort us. But it also provides the power to heal us through his love and through the gospel. Allow us to be cut. Allow us to be challenged today. First, we see that grace governs our monetary investment, okay? In other words, grace governs money. Look at verse 16, 1 through 4. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Okay, what's Paul doing? Paul, by the end of the letter, starts to talk about preparing a collection. You will oftentimes hear people say that, that, that giving is something and tithing is something in the Old Testament, right? A percentage, sure, 10%, but it's not something that stops into the New Testament. In fact, when we see Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount, he's not actually um, uh, upping the ante like some people believe in regards to law. He's getting down to the hard issue that's been missed and understood. So for so often, what people can do is just check an external box. Oh, 10%, yeah, yeah, no problem. What Jesus is doing on the Sermon on the Mount is, is, is saying, no, 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 you, you, you say it's adultery. I say when you've looked at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery, right? Because he's getting the hard issue. 
What Paul is also doing is getting to the hard issue here too because Paul could say just do 10%, but what the New Testament does, it says, is actually spend some time wrestling with this. The way that we do giving at, at GCC is, is intended to be intentional and biblical. Um, I, I think we might have a couple verses for that or not. Don't worry about it. I, I will read them for you and you guys can look at them later. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 and 7 says this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give, listen, as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. I'm not saying it's wrong to pass a plate, but the reason why we don't is because we want people to not just go, oh, impulsively, I should give. I haven't thought about this at all. We want people to be thinking about it, praying about it, talking about it with their families, engaging in this. That's different. That's a hard thing. A, a, a plate can pass by and you can go, here's 50 cents, here's a dollar, I just need to get it out of the way with. But what Paul's interested in is a heart level. And I believe that grace comes to bear on our monetary investment, that grace comes to bear on what we do with money. We also get this from Exodus, which I won't read there, and I believe that's where Paul gets it from, which is 35 through 21. We see it also right here, that Paul is saying, do this ahead of time. Set it aside so when I come, it's not something you have to do just then. It's something that you've already been talking through. Let's ask some honest questions. How is what you do, and I'm talking to the Christians here for a second, how is what you do different from those who don't call themselves Christians in regard to money? Because oftentimes what people do is this, is they go, I have my mortgage, I have my car payment, I have my student loans, I have my allowance, grocery budget. After all of that, maybe let's see what we have left for God. And I would say a, a, when grace governs your, your money, you don't start with what you might have left over for God because he owns 100% of everything. As you start with, this is what I'm going to give to God. I'm going to structure my finances in such a way to make it work around that. That is really different. I used to hate and still do in a sense of it being uncomfortable, like talking about money, but this, is, this, is a, this was a mind shift for me. Is when God's word talks about money, you would have to understand that God is the richest person in all the universe. And so God doesn't need anything from us. God's not like, I need you to give because I need this. If God is calling us to do something with our finances, my point is that God is interested in what's going on in our heart and not, let, not letting greed attach itself to us. And if you had a form of cancer, it's something so serious like that, you would do whatever you could to cut it out. But for some reason, we'll let greed sit in our hearts, let it manifest and let it grow. And, and, and you'll know because what, what you do with your money is, is what actually, or what you're holding on to is typically what is holding on to you. I have two little girls. If I go and run a mile with them and they're both strapped around my feet, any parent knows this, it's going to be really difficult to run. Oftentimes, the thing that we're holding on to are holding on to us. And so it's actually not freedom, but it's become the normal for us of how we've lived our lives. So God is actually interested in allowing us to, to, to grow in freedom. Here's the thing. The only people that are going to be generous are the people that understand the generosity of God given to us by him giving us the greatest gift of infinite worth that he could ever offer us, which is his own son. It's Jesus holding everything. He held the crown. He held the throne. He had everything laid it all aside to came to earth to say, I want you to have all that I have. My love, my acceptance, my approval, eternity with me forever, and I'm willing to become poor. I'm willing to become broken for you to have that. 
I'd say there's five types of givers. I'll run through these quickly. There's the legalistic giver, okay? This is where grace shifts and changes things. You, you, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you, I'll, I'll say it this way. You can't put enough money in the boxes to earn merit or favor with God. That's not why we give. I would say that's a, a lot of what you see in the South. It's just like, hey, let's just write a check, good. This is kind of how we come in right standing with God. Then there's the prosperity giver. It's like, I'm giving and I'm putting this in there, God. Pay attention because I need you to pay it forward tenfold. You know the house I want. You know the car I want. So I'm just sliding this in here right now. need you to pay attention to it, right? We, we, we do that with other things in life too. We go to God and, and go, look, I've been reading my Bible. I've been praying. I've been doing all these things. I hope you're seeing this and ready to bless me. And God can save back to that every second of every day. It's never been about what you've done. It's always been about what my son has done for you. Third is the prideful or apathetic giver. It's the person who goes, oh, yeah, I'm good at the giving stuff. Or they're apathetic. They don't know the last time that, that, that this has been something they've thought through or prayed through or invited their families to have a conversation about or even led in this. And in that sense, it's just like, yeah, it's just, just kind of do it. Then there's the greedy giver, which... That's a dichotomy because it's the person that doesn't give. So, and in that sense, they say, and, and they'll nor normally have some skewed theology to kind of mix in there with, it, with the, the 10%. But underneath all of that, if you're willing to be honest, if you're willing to be honest, the, the reason why our world is in such hurt and pain and why, and, and why our countries are starving and why there's not water is because we have an abundance and we're not willing to give it. Fifth, there's the grace giver. This is the person that says, I am blown away by what God has given me. Let me think through and lead through what I can do to help and let grace govern this area of my life. And I'm saying this, you, you guys could go, I don't know about that guy up there, whatever. But if there's things in life that drown out the flesh and sin and greed and those things, our job is to drown those things and starve those things so we're, we're feeding the spirit. And maybe this is an area where God is calling you to drown or starve something in your life and grow. The other thing is, for a lot of people, and, and, and this will ring true, this is the most emotionally exhausting thing for you. And, and, and not letting grace govern or the gospel govern or God govern your money will lead to a lot of emotion, uh, j j just emotional burnout because the one thing that'll constantly make you anxious, make you worried, you'll be checking, you'll be looking at is where we're at financially. God has something better than that. Next. Grace governs our spiritual maturity. I'm sorry, grace governs our, our, our spiritual and emotional investment now. Look with me at uh, 5 through 11. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia. And perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that, when you, uh, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. 
So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace that he may return to me for I am expecting him with the brothers. This is how grace governs our spiritual and emotional investment as well. So start with monetary, but now what about our spiritual and emotional investment? How does grace, how does the gospel govern and lead those things? We notice here that Paul says help twice. Do you see that? Perhaps I will stay in verse 6 with you, spend the winter, so that you may help me. And later on in verse 11, when he's talking about Timothy, it's that you may help him. You see, if you only write a big check and that's your level of an investment, that's the equivalent to you being a father of your child's baseball team that says, I'll buy you a nice jersey, I'll buy you a nice hat, heck, I'll even do it for the whole team. Just don't expect me to ever be at your games. So Paul is calling that into challenge right now to, to say that as saints, we are called to serve. As saints, we are called to help, but also as saints, we're called to ask for help. Again, this is going to be probably the, the point for some of you that you might not like. But the apostle Paul himself is willing to ask for help. He's saying like, like when I come, like you, you can help me, you can refresh me. The man who wrote the majority of the New Testament is saying like, I need help. That should encourage us. Jesus Christ in the darkest hours of his life in Gethsemane was crying out to his friends, please stay with me. Please pray with me. Please stay awake with me. God himself didn't have some view to where he couldn't ask for help, ask for his brothers to pray with him. If you are too ignorant or arrogant to ask for help, let me challenge that graciously because it's got to be one of the two. Because the Apostle Paul, Jesus, many others in the Bible are willing to say, like, I just need help. And I will tell you guys this through my own counseling lately, as I was challenged with this. My counselor said, Rick, you're good at transparency, horrible at vulnerability. Here's what he meant. You'll tell people what's wrong. You just won't let people in to help. It's a big, big difference. Here's my brokenness. Stay away from it. Are we willing to be people that have a deep spiritual investment and a deep emotional investment? Some of you need to say, I need help leading my family. Some of you need to say, I need help in what it looks like to be a Christian. I need help because I'm in a season of drought. I need help. What Paul is addressing here, and I can only picture that he wrote this letter with much tears, but he's saying that I need help, but he's also saying this. When Timothy comes to you, please help him too. Part of being emotionally and spiritually invested into a church is being emotionally and spiritually invested in the lives of the people that call, that make up the church. Is your love by the church governed by grace? Let me ask some honest questions. If you left, would people notice? Would it be felt because they go, that man or woman has made such an investment in my life that it's going to look different when they leave. I'm going to feel the weight of that. I I made a a comment in passing last week about scars and tears, so I want to clarify it because it's from Matthew Cruz's book, What Church Can Be. He says that that the idea of the apostles and the idea of, of the early church, in a sense, wasn't that Rick as a pastor or Paul as an apostle are the ones that are supposed to be emotionally and spiritually invested in the lives of the church, but actually every single church member is supposed to be deeply invested into one another's lives. 
Man, you get this with like the Navy SEALs, right? Because they do this and they do this well. They're not going to let their brother slack off because they understand that they're going to war and there's a battle. Oftentimes, we don't have that level of an engagement, encouragement, and challenge with our brothers and sisters. Hebrews 3 talks about exhorting, parakaleho, exhort one another every day. That means either challenge or encourage one another every day. What I'm declaring to you guys first is that I need help. I, as the pastor of this church, need help. I need a lot of help. In fact, my only prayer that I've cried lately is help. I'll, I'll, I'll read you something this week. It's been just a rough, 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 rough week a rough past couple weeks, a lot of tears, just, just, just difficult season. I would say that's how defined that we're in. So I wrote this and sent it to my wife, but, but, but I'll share it with you guys. Father, what if help is all I have to offer or pray? What if I don't feel like I can say or do anything other than help me? I feel tired, hurt, angry, frustrated, and empty. Did anyone else in the Bible just cry the words help? It seems like David cried out, but he, at least he knew what he needed help for. Lord, help me from feeling the way I feel. Help me with my anger. Help me with my depression. Help me with my sadness. Help me with my fear and loneliness. Help me with my lack of joy. Help me forgive. Help me with my lack of patience. Help me to feel your presence and your comfort. Help me to believe the gospel and help me to have peace in my soul. Help me to believe in your infinite love and help me to be satisfied in your approval. Help me to be a better husband and a better father and a better pastor. Help me not to feel like I am drowning in my failures and help me not to find my identity in successes. Help me not to feel so guilty. Help me not to put the pressure of doing everything perfectly upon myself. Help me to embrace my human limitations. Help me to find joy in the ordinary and mundane. Help me to be present with my family. Help me not to become jaded or walk towards sin. Help me to walk toward the cross. Help me to surrender and help me die to myself. Help me to admit I need grace. Help me to admit when I'm wrong. Help me, Father, I'm tired and quitting sounds easier. Help me to seek your help and seek help from others. Help me to believe your word and that you are the help that is always there offering your ever-present help. Help me to know that I rest in your arms, that I'm your son, that I'm infinitely loved by you. And help me when I have nothing to offer you to know that is exactly where you want me and where you meet me. I think the reality is, is for so many people, we could say, I'm kind of in that spot or I'm kind of in that season. And sometimes the most godly prayer we can pray is help. And sometimes the most godly thing we can do is say help. But here's the thing. As soon as the church stops helping, then no one gets help. It is a bunch of broken people caring for broken people. But that comes through us all having a deep investment motivated by grace. It's not I sign up to serve so I get kudos from God or from Rick. It's I sign up to serve because the king of the universe served me. The tears and scars I was talking about last week is this, is that he, he is saying that those, that's the type of investment that everyone in the church should have, that there's people you should be crying for, your, your local church family, the people here, the people online. These are the people I'm crying over. These are the people I'm invested in. It's not just Rick's job, it's our job to help. So I'll ask you that question. Do you, do, do you believe that you're someone who is spiritually and emotionally invested in the local church you're a part of? If not, are you willing to repent? Are you willing to ask for help? Are you willing to help? And, and, and I want to say this, that in, in, in Corinth, there are some big personalities, right? Seems because Timothy's coming and Tim, Timothy's timid. He's sometimes called timid Timothy. Tim, Timothy lacked courage. Everyone in this room lacks courage. 
The, the, the truth is, is that until we actually are doing something that God has called us to that makes us uncomfortable, we're probably not going to live on our knees. And we're not going to have to ask, give me courage. But Timothy was coming there and Paul's like, hey, please help him. What does he mean by this? Don't make his job miserable. Uh, let, let me say it this way. Speaking for our church is we have younger people that work for the church. We have Hunter, we have Nathan, we have Zach, we have Matthew, we have others. You could use your age or maybe your level to make their jobs difficult, or, you, or grace could humble you that we're all in the same playing field and you could do whatever you could to help them and make their jobs easier. The church functions well when we all have a high investment of emotional and spiritual help. But as soon as we put conditions on it, as, as soon as we say, well, unless I'm getting helped or unless it's going down this way, that is not a biblical response. That is no different than the love of the world because the love of the world says, as long as these conditions are met, I'll love. But grace says, when you meet none of the conditions, I love. This is what God says. The Ten Commandments, my son met them all. That drives my love. And so this should stir up some sort of spiritual or emotional investment. If it's not, then I want to ask why. Because a works-based faith is not a genuine faith. But a faith that doesn't produce any sort of works, I'm going to challenge that and, and ask you to challenge it if it's actually a genuine faith. Next, grace governs our spiritual, spiritual maturity. 12 through 18. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers. But it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Just real quick. This is not Paul's passive aggressiveness here, saying like, because uh, saying that Apollos doesn't want to come to you or calling out Apollos. There, there, there's many translations. What is unclear is, is we don't know why Apollos couldn't come right now. But what is clear is that Paul refers to him as our brother. It's a sign of respect, okay? Th uh, 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, know that the household of Faunus were the first converts, and this is how you say this, if you guys want to practice it for your groups, but it's ahia, okay? Ahia. And that they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these, and to the fellow worker and laborer, I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Ahaiacus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. Grace governs our spiritual maturity. You know what Paul says here? And, and, and like people have said when you picture Paul, people picture George Costanza, not King Leonidas from 300. So, 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 so Paul's, Paul's understanding of what it is to be a man of God isn't some macho, machismo type thing. It is grounded in grace. It is grounded in love. And, and, and I think what we can see from 13 and 14 is this, that what it is to act like a man and what Paul is doing is saying, you can't stay in this Peter Pan world. You got to grow up. You got to act like men. And, and I don't think that is just for the men. I think it's for the women too. But, 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 but Paul is using this masking language to, to say like, like men, generally not always, are, are, are physically strong. So, 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 so grow up as, as one would physically, with, with physical strength, grow up spiritually as well. And, and I think this is Paul's loving way to say, guys, it's time to grow up. 
Let, let grace drive you to spiritual maturity. Let, 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 let the fact that you have 100% grade in God's eyes and he'll never give you anything lower than that. You'll never have a 99, you'll never have a 98. God sees you as 100% because of the faith that you have in Christ. Let that drive you to spiritual maturity. He also says, I want to recognize, and he recognizes people. And I, I want to do the same too. Because I had some guys over recently, and uh, we were talking about what it looks like to love our wives and, and what it looks like to start off your week doing that, to ask them questions, to, to how you can pray for your wife, how you can gospel your wife. And I just want to say, I was encouraged by some men there taking notes, so wives, you should know that. I was also encouraged that uh, Devin Rogers in that moment was like, hey, can you send us a document that you have? Like, I love that because he's saying, like, I want to grow in that. Can you send me the document? Can, 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 can you help with that? I want to grow in spiritual maturity. And I've seen just brothers in our church just grow, and it's been encouraging to see. I, I've always said we're like a ragtag, ragamuffin group of guys, and God loves to, God delights working with guys like that, with women like that. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that can be said is, oh, that was all God's grace. So I think what he's saying here is this, is stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, be tough, but he also says, let all you do be done in love, be tender. This is, these are the things that, that should accompany every saint. We should be tough and tender. We should have grace and truth. We should have courage and we should have meekness. And those things should accompany each other well. But we should be people that are willing to be challenged. We should be people that are, uh, submit ourselves to that sort of challenge. And that's the other thing that, that, that he talks about here is in 16, he says, be subject to, to, to such as these. So for, for the people that are laboring in the gospel, grace drives you to be submissive. Because it humbles everyone on the same playing field. It's not, I'm, I'm at a higher social status, I'm here, I'm here. In God's kingdom, there is son and daughter. That's it. When you step in, you step in and you maintain in God's kingdom this identity, son and daughter forever. But let's grow up in what it looks like to be a son and daughter. This can't be external actions. This can't be, I check the boxes, I do all this stuff. If that's the case, the Pharisees and the scribes and the Sadducees would have been praised by Jesus as the most spiritually mature people they were. And Jesus says, you're dead. You're like whitewashed tombs. You're like a rotting corpse inside of a pretty coffin. What is he saying? He's like, all this external stuff doesn't matter. It's on the inside of the heart. There's a longing and a yearning for Jesus. It is a spirit that says, I need grace every moment of every day. And is a longing to say, I don't want to stay where I'm at. The gospel doesn't allow me. I want to grow up into it. As a son or as a daughter, grace compels us. Why? Because we run a race with such freedom. Two runners line up. The one who understands grace can run with such freedom because not everything, like my earlier days in fighting, not everything was riding on that. No, no, no. You have something much greater that defines you. Last. Grace governs our love for the saints and those outside the faith. Look here as Paul ends, 19 through 24. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. 
My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. What is, what is Paul saying? Grace governs our love for the saints and our love for those outside of the faith. You see here that Aquila and Prisca are willing to open their homes. I just want to recognize and praise that there's many of you who have been doing this at GC for years that you offered your home in service to open up for the sake of the gospel. It's people that are doing that. Hospitality in the Bible is actually not just about putting food on the table. It's about welcoming strangers, those inside of the faith that are maybe on the fringes, but those outside of the faith as well. You can also see the love for the church that Paul has for them, that they have for one another like to send greetings. And I think that's the thing that should drive us and should drive our church. I wanna go back and say one thing, that for men to, to, to I'm gonna to speak to the men for a minute, to, for men to grow up in what it looks like to be a man of God is gonna look different for every man in this room and online. Here's what I mean. I've seen Eric as well grow tremendously over the past five years. He is a servant leader. I was like week after week there to set up chairs. Eric, like me, two broken men but I've seen this guy grow in what it is to be a servant leader, who then at some point was asked to join the worship team, who then at some point was asked to do announcements. The way that Eric lives out of being a man of God is gonna look different from Jay Clausen, just using these two examples. They're two different guys. They need to be who God has created them to be, but also who God is recreating them to be in Christ. In other words, dethroning their many kings, dethroning their idols, tearing down their flesh, starving out their sin, and building them up to live fully in Christ. But I want to tell you guys, there's not like this one mold for men in the church. And I think we should be careful with that. But lastly, as we see the way that this love governs and grace governs a love for the saints and for those outside of the Christian community, let me end with this. is that love will rock our city. And so if, if, if our church, if GCC could do these things, if we could keep the gospel the main thing, what is it? What is the gospel of grace? It's this. If right now your soul feels at all a bit heavy, like, man, I haven't checked those boxes, that's good. That's actually what, what it is to be poor in spirit, to say, man, I'm, I'm bankrupt. I see how I've fallen short, and so what do I do? Great question grace. You understand that God sent his son not to just model a good life for you, but to die on the cross, the death that we deserve to die. That Jesus did all of this. He did all of this perfectly for us, but he died as though he had done all this awfully because he died in our place, taken upon us our judgment, our punishment that we deserve. He took that upon himself. The good news is, is that when you place your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, that there's not a second of the day that God doesn't look at you and see that you've done all of this perfectly with your finances, with your spiritual and emotional investment, with spiritual maturity, and with love. Because God doesn't choose to look at your life. God chooses to look at the life of Christ lived out for you. That compels us. And so if we keep the gospel the main thing, that's the first thing. But if we hold up sound doctrine, I'm going to tell you guys, now and in the future, sound doctrine is not popular. In, 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 in the place that we live, it's not popular. But here's the thing. If we can hold up the gospel as the main thing, sound doctrine, and we can also love the heck out of people, 
then it's really hard to argue with sound doctrine because our doctrine should lead us to love people like crazy. We should love people inside of the church so that this, uh, people can know that we are disciples, but we should love people outside of the church like crazy because then people have to say, man, it's really hard to like get nitpicky on their doctrine and tear it apart because they just love people like crazy. And last, four, if we stay on our knees and if our knees are calloused from being in prayer and if we're living and abiding in God's word, these things will affect the way that the saints live in society. I'll close in saying this, that if you're someone now, midst of whatever's going on in your life, that maybe feels dirty, feels broken, feels the weight of your sin and not the weight of grace, let me remind you of this quick story of the prodigal son. And it's helpful for us to know because it's also our job as Christians. I love the story of the prodigal son because my, my favorite part in that story is when the father runs to meet him and he tells his servant, he's like, go get my robe. Everyone knew what that meant. Like back then, you, you, you had one fine robe, and, and it, it was only for the father. It's what he wore. It's, it, it symbolized his robe. It would have been flawless, okay? He's like, go get that, and I'm going to put it on my son. So he grabs this perfect robe without any spot, without any blemish, and he wraps it around his son, smelling dirty, gross, and stinky. And in a sense, what he says is now let's go to the party. Let's go back home. And that way when everyone walks in and sees you, they know that you have my approval. They know you're my son. They don't see your, your rags. They don't see your shame. They don't see your sin. They're not looking at all that. What they're looking and going, wow, that's an incredible robe. Christians have that robe. It's the robe of Christ's righteousness. It's our job as saints, and this is where we, where, where, what we have to do. It's our job as saints to constantly go to one another and, and say, hey, remember, I can see right now you're, you're living and walking in shame and guilt. Remember the robe that Christ gave you. Remember what the Father's placed on you and around you. Remember what he's covered you with. And, and in a sense, I can almost picture the Father lifting up the son's chin and saying, you can hold your head in confidence because it's not about what you've done. It's about what I've given to you, son or daughter. Let's pray. God, I pray that we are people that are hungry and eager to grow. God, I pray that we're people that are brought to our knees through an understanding of grace. God, I pray that we're people that are quick to say help. And then I pray that we would know that a prayer and a cry of help is just fine, God. So help us. Lead us to the cross. Even as we sing that song coming up, lead us to the cross. Lead us there, God, to remind us that it's all been dealt with, that it's done, that it's finished and that we're loved. In Jesus' name, amen.